Good evening, church. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them up to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16 is where we will be this evening. And as we come now to the Word, let me pray for us once more. Father, thank you so much for this joyful evening that we've already had. Lord, thank you for the fellowship that we get to share in the gospel, the wonderful truths that we've had the pleasure and privilege of belting out to you this evening, encouraging each other in you. I pray, God, that you would take your word now, that you would plant it deep within us. Lord, that these would not be my words, but that this would be your word. The hearts of your people would be encouraged. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as Ed mentioned, we've been making our way through the life of Abraham, although he's not yet Abraham tonight. He's still just Abram. And so far in the chapters that we've covered, as you know, Abram has been on the metaphorical mountaintop, so to speak. God has called him out of his native homeland. He's delivered him from his enemies. And last week we saw God go so far as to even make a covenant with him. God explicitly told Abram that he was going to make him into a great nation with offspring and spiritual blessing. And for us, it's only been one week, but for our characters this evening in the story, it's been 10 years since God said that. And so far, nothing has happened. And Abram and Sarai are only getting older. So tonight we come to a passage in Scripture where things get a little dicey. On the one hand, Abram and Sarai and us today can acknowledge that God is God and we are not. But at the same time, in our human frailty, we often wonder, God, where are you? Do you hear me? Do you see me? And that moment is a vital crossroads. Will we follow God's plan or will we follow our own? And that crossroads is exactly where we find Abram and Sarai here this evening. Follow along with me if you would. Genesis chapter 16. This is God's word. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. He went into Hagar, and she conceived. When she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from, and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. The angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, 
because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God of seeing. For she said, Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore the well was called Be'er Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. This is the word of the Lord. The sermon this evening is called The God Who Hears and Sees. And we're going to see as we go along tonight, there'll be five points. The problem, the plan, the pregnancy, the promises, and the providence. So point number one, the problem. In the previous chapter, as you know, Abram cried out to God saying, Oh Lord, what are you going to give me? For I continue childless and you've given me no offspring. So why does Abram want kids? Why is this such a concern for him at this moment? Is it so he can post an Instagram of him and Sarai in the woods holding a cute sonogram? Is it so he can get one of those cool shirts or coffee mugs that says Papa Bear or Dad Life on it? Is it so he can shoot off a gun of blue confetti at a gender reveal party? No, but Abram wants a child so he can have an heir. He has seen God do so many amazing things in his life, and he wants to pass it on to future generations. So God goes on to tell Abram that he is going to have an heir as his own son, and that his offspring will indeed be so plentiful that if he's able to even number the stars, that's how many his offspring will be. But now, ten years has gone by, still no baby showers, still no confetti guns. And even though God told Abram that he would be his shield, our friends Abram and Sarai are sitting around wondering, what is happening? Where is God? Is he good? Is he faithful? Christian, has this ever been your experience? Have you ever questioned with Abram and Sarai, God, where are you? What are you doing in my life? Why am I facing this problem? How can this be your will for me? When you think that your life is going one way or that your life is going to go one way and not exactly happening. Church, many of you know about Tess and I's own struggles with infertility. When we first got married, we thought to ourselves, okay, let's wait for kids for a little while because first year of marriage. And after that, we were like, okay, let's wait for a little longer because of seminary and money is a thing. But as we came to the end of seminary, and we were now ready, we foolishly assumed that we got to call the shots. Like, okay, God, we are ready now, so you make it happen. But friends, our God will not have his schedule or his plans dictated. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Amen? And for us, it's been now over two years of asking the Lord for something good and him not granting it. So I ask you again, Have you had this experience in your walk with the Lord? What are good desires in your life that you have asked the Lord for and that he is not granting to you? You've prayed. Others have prayed. You've maybe even begged or even wept over it. What is your problem or your problems today? Is it facing the trial of unemployment and desiring a job? 
Is it loneliness and asking for a spouse or simply a good friend? Is it the loneliness of being in a marriage where you long for your spouse to be saved or salvation of your family or friends or a financial concern or a health concern? If you're not currently facing any of these problems, older saints will tell you that you might one day be shocked at the sorts of problems God brings into your life. And with these kinds of problems, it would be easy for someone to sort of rattle off trite platitudes to you like, I'm sure it'll work out for you someday, or you just need to be more content, and then God will give you what you want, or God won't give you more than you can handle. But friends, statements like these are patently and biblically false. God might take away your problem. God might give that hope or that desire or that prayer request to you, but he might not. So even if he doesn't give that thing to you or take away your problem, or even if he brings a new and catastrophic problem into your life, will he still be the king of your heart? Will he still be Lord of your life? Will you still lean into him? As Spurgeon says, I've learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of all ages. Will you submit? Will you kiss the wave of his sovereign plan for you, even if the pain never subsides. Point number one was the problem. Point number two is the plan. In Abram and Sarai's case, God was not enough for them. They were not content with God in him alone. They wanted to have God plus all these wonderful things that he had promised to them. And just like maybe you and I would know too well, they were impatient and they didn't trust God. So much so that they looked at themselves, they looked at their age, they desperately wanted to be parents, and they calculated themselves and and said to themselves, Self, I am past the age of childbearing. How will I ever bear a child? Sarah says as much there in verse 2. She says, God has prevented me from bearing children. And while it is true that The Lord is the one who opens and closes the womb. Sarah is presuming what God is up to, and she is prophesying her own future apart from God's revealed truth. You put problem and presumption and prophecy into a cocktail, and you know what you get? You get a plan. And so Sarah now formulates a plan based on a concoction of her own making, not on what God had told her to do. And the plan takes root In Sarai's heart, she becomes willing to take matters into her own hands. She wanted to help God out a little bit. She didn't want him to look bad. And so now she departs from God's design for marriage in order to make it happen. And tragically, she's willing to hire out one of her own servants to defile her marriage bed. But friends, sinning to get a desired outcome does not cancel out the sinning or even lead to a good desired outcome. What happens in the Bible every single time humans take things into their own hands? We don't have to look back very far in Genesis to see. Genesis 3 shows it to us with Adam and Eve. Genesis 4 shows it to us with Cain and Abel. Genesis 6 with Noah's generation. Genesis 9 with Noah himself. Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel. And Genesis 16 shows it to us here. Sarai tells Abram to go into her female Egyptian servant named Hagar so that she can obtain children through her. Now, married men or men who aspire to be married in this room, here is a free marriage tip for you. 
If your wife tells you to do this, don't do it. Do not listen. (laughs) I'm not saying don't listen to your wife at all. If you try that as a blanket statement, it's going to be equally terrible for you. What I am saying is that if your wife tells you in any way to disobey God, do not listen. This is hearkening back to the Garden of Eden where Adam passively listens to the voice of his wife Eve. And in doing so, Adam and Eve bear the guilt of plunging the entire human race into sin and death. And similarly here, Abram passively listens to the voice of Sarai leading him into sin. And he then chooses to sin and disobey God by jumping into bed with a young servant girl. Sin makes us crazy. So in your life, when the pressure cooker of problems and suffering is cranked up full throttle, how are you, like Abram and Sarai here, tempted to take your life and your plans into your own hands? How are you tempted to depart from God's revealed will for your life to just give yourself a little bit of what you think you need. For Abram and Sarai, God told them directly what was going to happen in their lives. They got antsy. They didn't trust him. They went against his will and tried to bring about the promise according to the flesh. For us today, God doesn't give us little fortune cookie horoscopes or eight ball revelations about what the specific details of our lives and stories will look like. But do you know what he does give to us? His holy inspired, inerrant, authoritative word. And one example of this, 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3, this is the will of God, your sanctification. So anything that is against the word of God is not the will of God for your life. Christian, do not attempt to sidestep God's plan for you. It will go terribly. As Thomas Watson says, sin always promises the bait but hides the hook. Maybe you're listening to this tonight and you've already taken a situation into your own hands. Maybe even right now in this moment, you find yourself currently caught deep by the hook of sin. Well, then what? Hang with me. Point number two was the plan. Point number three is the pregnancy. Sarai now is going to have to sit in the pain, in the painful sting of a sinful plan that actually worked. Has this ever happened to you where you want something, where you strive for it, you work for it, and boom, you finally get it, but it bites you. It consumes you. It destroys you. The first sting comes for Sarai because while she has struggled with infertility for years and years, Hagar is able to simply sneeze and she conceives. And to make matters worse, the second sting comes when Hagar sinfully and pridefully gives Sarah that stank face. That look that says, I'm better than you. And she gloats over Sarah and looks with contempt upon her. But the third sting for Sarah is perhaps the worst one of all. For the rest of her life, Sarah now is going to have to deal with the fact that she and Abram have directly disobeyed the God of the universe in sin always has consequences. And in the midst of her pain, she both victimizes herself and actually blames Abram, even though it was her idea. She is saying here, what we are all tempted to say in New York City traffic when someone cuts us off. Look again at verse 5. May the wrong done to me be on you. Right? She's saying, 
the very same type of thing that the imprecatory Psalms say when God's people are praying down curses on their oppressors. And she's so angry that she brings the very name of God into the equation. At the end of verse 5, she says, May the Lord judge between you and me. And now Abram is in a very difficult spot. More difficult than leaving his homeland. More difficult than accepting the objectively worse land than Lot. More difficult than even rescuing Lot from the big bad kings. Abram is now caught between two feuding women. And as we all know, (laughs) and as we all know, a great polygamous marriage is an oxymoron. And Abram gives into passivity by permitting Sarai to let her furious wrath come down upon Hagar. It's kind of like when I was a little kid and my older sister used to pick on me and so my mom taught me a new word, antagonize. As a little boy, I would go around saying, Kelsey, stop antagonizing me. And one day I shouted out, Mom, Kelsey's antagonizing me. And my mom was distracted by something and surely kidding. And she goes, oh, just hit her. But I, in my little boy anger, took it very literally and said, okay, and punched her right in the face. So any kids or youth in the room tonight, don't try this at home. But I did this because of the license and the free pass that was given to my sinful anger. As Abram says there in verse 6, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. So Sarai was given license and we're told that she dealt harshly with Hagar. One application of this is very simple. Men, don't passively give license to others to sin, but But for all of us in this room, don't mess with a sinful, angry, 75-year-old woman. And and the Hebrew doesn't exactly spell out for us like exactly what this means, but it could certainly mean whipped. It could mean beaten, probably screamed at. And who knows what other kind of manner of physical and verbal abuse that Hagar endured? Can you imagine the emotional roller coaster that Hagar is on right now? Minute one, She's in Egypt. Minute two, she's taken from her homeland and now with a foreign people in a foreign land. Minute three, her master Sarai is commanding her to do something that she has no voice in whatsoever. Minute four, she's now preggers enduring the first trimester and her master hates her. Minute five, it's apparently bad enough for Hagar to get out of Dodge and so Hagar is on the run. Now Abram and Sarai are sitting at home in the shattered mess of their sin and brokenness and hope deferred. Their marriage is in shambles. Their servant is gone. And they're still childless. Point number three was the pregnancy. Point number four is the promises. Picture a pregnant woman trying to run a marathon. Now picture a pregnant woman trying to run a marathon through the desert in the Middle East. They didn't exactly have like you know, backpack water bottles with, you know, a little like water right there for them to have or cheap lemonade stands set up throughout the desert, right? In other words, Hagar and her boy are now headed for certainty of death. But friends, these are the exact places that our God loves to show up. He condescends to the outcast, to the mistreated, to the brokenhearted, to the downtrodden, to the hell-bound sinner. 
And we're told that at this moment that the angel of the Lord shows up and finds her by a spring of water. And in verse 8, he asks her, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? A question, as you know, that comes straight out of the country song, Cotton Eye Joe. Where have you come from? Where did you go? Hagar is fleeing. And unlike our VBS theme of escape from Egypt, we know she's playing escape from Sarai and actually headed back to Egypt, right? And the angel of the Lord very simply commands her to return and to submit to Sarai. And why is he telling her this? Because it's the only way that she is going to survive and not die in the wilderness. Now, you and I can imagine Hagar thinking to herself that this angel must be a little crazy. She's never met an angel before, but this one is apparently wackadoo because these are the exact two things that she does not want to do. And think about this. If, if the angel had simply told her, hey, Hagar, go back to, and submit to Sarai, mic drop, angel out, those would no doubt be the hardest possible commands that could have been given to her. Similarly for us, sometimes the obedience that God calls us to will be the most difficult thing we have ever done. Not taking another drink, not looking at pornography, no longer sleeping around, dying to our pride or our selfishness or repenting of our sins to one we have hurt or repenting of our sins publicly. Friends, the good news is that God's commands are always rooted in His promises. So notice that the angel of the Lord doesn't give this command without a backbone. Verse 10, the angel says, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. This, as you know, mirrors the Abrahamic promise. And so Hagar is accidentally and unintentionally being swept up into this crazy colossal covenant family. And the angel goes on to say in verse 11, you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. Maybe your Bible will tell you in the footnotes that the name Ishmael in the Hebrew means God hears. So God heard all that Hagar had endured. God listened to her pain the whole way. God heard her affliction when she was taken from her home and from those she loved. He listened to her confusion when she was co-opted into Sarai's fleshly plan. God heard her pain when she was mistreated and discarded by both Abram and Sarai. And maybe you feel a little bit like Hagar right now, chewed up and spit out by what life has dealt you. Like a stethoscope to a heartbeat, God hears your affliction. God listens to your pain. Nothing that you and I have ever experienced is out of reach of God's loving and sovereign ear. And yet even though the Lord has heard Hagar's affliction here, even though He graciously saved her and Ishmael's lives, there will still be unfortunate consequences because the three-headed monster of Abram and Sarai and Hagar's sin will still bring great suffering. Look again at these prophecies about Ishmael in verse 12. It says, He shall be a wild donkey of a man. His hand shall be against everyone. Everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. And and we hear this, we read this today, and we're like, how is a wild donkey always at war a good promise? Like, how is that a good thing? And that's exactly what we should be thinking. In one sense, this news to Hagar that her son would live would have actually brought her great comfort 
in this moment. But notice that all of these promises are temporal. They're all earthly-based promises marked by strife and conflict. And so in another sense, these promises are deeply troubling. That Ishmael and future offspring are always going to be at war with those around them, and that's all because of sin. Point number four was the promises. Point number five is the providence. Hagar realizes in a moment that she is not speaking with an ordinary angel, but with God himself. And she responds by actually naming God there in verse 13. She says, you are a God of seeing. Up until this moment of her life, as as one author put it, Hagar had never truly been seen by another person. Her enslavers saw her as the spoils. Abram and Sarai saw her as the incubator for their promised child. But God, God saw her. And Hagar's encounter with the living God convinced her that she indeed was seen by God. Every time our brother Jerry Rennie prays at Tuesday prayer meeting, he praises God for God's eyes. And that's exactly right. Our God sees. And so today, whatever your sin, whatever your affliction, whatever your experience may be, God sees you. He doesn't look at you as Hagar did to Sarai. He doesn't gaze upon you with a look of mild disappointment or salvation regret. But look again at what, ha- at what he says, at what Hagar says there in verse 13. Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. So I ask you, do you feel unseen or not looked after by God? Do you feel ignored by God? Like he cares about all those other people over there, but not my life. You think you could escape his vision and he wouldn't even notice? That it seems like God doesn't care about your suffering? And let Genesis 16 correct our understanding of God tonight. As William Cooper wrote in the midst of a severe depression, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. So Christian, even if it doesn't feel like it, God is caring for you in and through your suffering. Even when we don't understand what God is doing in our lives, even if we never get the things that we want or ask for, We can trust that as Spurgeon says, if any situation were better than the one you are currently in, divine love would have put you there. So whatever our hardship, whatever our trial, whatever our waiting, God sees us and looks after us. And it would only be pride or arrogance to think that we could run the universe or our lives better than he could. Listen to how the Heidelberg Catechism puts it. God's Providence is his almighty and ever-present power, whereby as with his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures, and so governs them leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty. Indeed, all things come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Your suffering is not wasted or pointless. And it's certainly not proving the sneaking suspicion that God hates you. Even your afflictions are from his loving fatherly hand. As the late Tim Keller put it, if we knew what God knew, 
we would ask exactly for what he gives. So as you face hardships like Abram and Sarah and Hagar did, remember that God cares for us in our suffering by making us closer to Christ and more like Christ. But chiefly, God is caring for us in the fact that we are not in hell right now as we deserve. That if you're not a Christian, that if you still have breath in your lungs, that you still have time to repent of your sins and turn to Christ by faith. And if you are a Christian, praise the Lord for his providential work of salvation in your life from sin and death and hell. As my Texas football coach used to say, if you see a turtle on a fence post, you know it didn't get there by itself. Christian, we are turtles on fence posts. We didn't figure this God stuff out. We didn't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We didn't try hard enough or work our way into salvation. It is by grace and grace alone, and nothing can separate us from his love. And so our passage concludes with, with Hagar being inspired to obedience to return to her master Sarai and submit to her. The problem didn't go away. The plan had failed. The pregnancy was still a rough nine months, I'm sure. The promises were true that Hagar bore a son named Ishmael and God in his, promise, in his providence was seen and looking after her the whole time. What's the point of all of this? Does it end with Ishmael being the eventual child of promise? No. Does it end with Hagar becoming a Christian miraculously? We don't know. Does it end with Abram and Sarai entering a time machine and going back and changing all these events and then popping out much younger and yay, now they can have children? No. Abram is 86 and Sarai is 75 when all of this happens. And the next 13 years of their life is going to be devoted to raising Ishmael. And every time they look at this child, they're going to be painfully reminded of their disobedience to their God. And yet God was up to something so much greater than even they could fathom. You see, just like God heard and saw Hagar, God heard and saw Abram and Sarai as well. That even in the midst of their afflictions and their distrust and their screw-ups and their failures, God was still covenantally committed to them. So I ask you again, have you messed up big time? Are you in the teeth of sin right now? If that's you, I would appeal to you to come into the light with God and with your brothers and sisters. But others of us might not be in heinous sin, but simply struggling to believe that God loves us in our suffering. And no matter where you find yourself on that spectrum this evening, if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ, He is covenantally committed to you. Amen? The book of Galatians says that we are not children of the slave woman according to the flesh, but children of the free woman according to promise. And our promises in Christ are not like mere survival like Ishmael into the next generation, but eternal life in him. Our promises in Christ are not endless fighting in war like Ishmael, but endless peace in him because of the gospel. And our standing before God is no longer as disobedient and wayward children like Abram and Sarai and Hagar and Ishmael all were. But in Christ, you are holy and beloved and adopted and cleansed, righteous, justified child. 
See, God would one day bring about Abram and Sarai's child of promise in his timing. And this child would one day have offspring who would have offspring who would have offspring who would eventually have the promised offspring, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who came with both the power and the intention to save his people from our sins. And all of Abram and Sarai's sins would be absorbed and covered and cleansed by the blood of this child because his perfect life, his sacrificial death on the cross, and his glorious resurrection from the dead would one day bring his blessings as far as the curse is found. Not only to forgive and cleanse and adopt those of Abram and Sarai's family, but even to those who would descend from Hagar and Ishmael and all the nations of the earth could be grafted into this family by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. God hears you. God sees you. Let's pray. Our great God and Father in heaven, thank you so much for this time devoted to spend time looking at your word and hearing from you. God, I pray for all of us this evening that we would have impressed upon us your hearing of us, your sight of us, and your love for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for this evening. We ask that you'd receive all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.